It was early on the morning of Thursday, February February 24th, local time, when Russian President Vladimir Putin announced what he called a special military operation in Ukraine, a dramatic escalation of the invasion that began in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. It was a move that had been anticipated, perhaps, but caught many off guard. It was an invasion that would very much shape geopolitics in the year 2022. It was the most aggressive land grab seen in 80 years. It received widespread condemnation right off the bat, including from President Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau, and Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. President Putin launched the greatest threat to European stability since World War II. History will judge President Putin as harshly as the world condemns him. But what Russia expected to be a short and successful incursion to oust the Ukrainian government of Vladimir Zelensky and replace it with a regime loyal to Moscow to keep Ukraine and its people under the Kremlin's thumb and out of Europe's grasp would instead fail as Ukraine, symbolized by Zelensky, refused to back down and instead fought the larger Russian army tooth and nail. It would unleash, though, consequences felt right around the world. Millions of refugees fled the country as their cities, towns, and villages were bombarded from afar. We spoke to Svetlana Prestupa, an English teacher in Kharkiv, a week into the war as missiles rained down on Ukraine's second most populated city near the Russian border. I didn't want to leave because it's my home and I didn't do anything wrong and I, I don't see any reason for me to run. I think they should run. Russians should go away and stop all this nightmare. Svetlana, though, would leave with her family, uh, leave Ukraine, as so many others did. It also cut off part of Europe's breadbasket, causing food prices to increase and shortages right around the world. And the rush to help Ukraine defend itself also brought NATO into the nearest it's been to a direct confrontation with Russia in a very long time, and demands that allies do more to protect Ukraine's skies from relentless Russian bombardment uh, also permeated this conversation. Here's Ukrainian Member of Parliament Kira Rudik. There are three words that explain what Ukraine needs. Weapons, money, and sanctions. Sanctions against Russia. As well as protection from the skies. And of course, a lot of that, historical sanctions against Russia this year, it really changed geopolitics in a way that's almost hard to overstate. Uh, It reshaped the region. European nations such as Germany, long reliant on Russian energy, were forced to look for alternatives. Sweden and Finland agreed to join NATO. In short, the morning of February 24th uh, was always going to change dramatically or alter uh, dramatically the geopolitical landscape just because of Putin's decision. But given Ukraine's resistance, What exactly has changed remains unclear even now. Well, joining me now with more on this and other headlines from the U.S. and around the world this year is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse. Welcome to our end of the year review. Pleasure to talk. To start in Ukraine, because I think it's hard to imagine what 2022 would have been like without it and hard to imagine going in what it would have been like with it. Uh, It's had such a profound impact on a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Where have you seen the most, perhaps the biggest and most surprising impacts? Well, that is a a vast question. Indeed. Um, This is a a war that has touched the hearts of the world. I think it has come 
especially closely home to Canada. Canada's made an outsized contribution to both humanitarian relief and the military effort. Obviously, the, the lead has been held by the United States. What we have here is an example of a country that is an emerging democracy, that has committed itself to joining the, the, the Western European world. They have been fighting aggression for a long time. The current war really started in 2014 with the uh, Russian invasion of Crimea and then parts of eastern Ukraine. And what's at stake here is whether democratic societies will resist this kind of aggression. Uh, the Ukrainians stunned the world by their courage. And now the question for all of us is, will we keep faith with them? And I suppose that is something that, that those questions continue to be asked in the halls of power, specifically these days in the U.S., but also elsewhere. Well, the, they're asked a little less loudly than they were, because one of the effects of the November election in the United States has been to decisively repudiate the forces in American politics that were hostile to Ukraine. There is, uh, unfortunately, a substantial minority within the Republican Party uh, who wanted to turn their backs on Ukraine, stop the flow of aid, some of them because they admire the Putin regime, some just because they follow Donald Trump and seeing Ukraine, Ukraine didn't help Donald Trump to besmirch, confect a scandal against Joe Biden in 2020, and they're mad about that. In the Senate, one of the anti-Ukraine voices, J.D. Vance in Ohio, did win, but most of the others lost, especially Blake Masters in Arizona. And the House, too, the very small margin of the Republican majority in the new Congress means that uh, they're not going to have the clout. President Biden was strongly reinforced by the November elections, and that's going to have a chastening effect on some of the more radical elements in the anti-Ukraine forces in the Republican Party. Do you see... Um the cohesion lessening at all uh, as we go through what will be a cold and tough winter, we think, well, certainly in Ukraine, but also in the rest of the European Union, Britain. Uh, it feels like as time goes on, it's hard to tell who, whose side time is on here. You never want to send letters of congratulation prematurely, but I, I think the European countries have done a, a fantastic job. They're going into this winter, unlike the last, with completely full uh, stocks of natural gas. The way the natural gas in Europe works is the natural gas moves along pipelines or by ship. Going into the, the last winter, the Russians in the summer of 2021 constrained natural gas supplies uh, over their pipelines into Europe so that Europe entered the winter of 21-22 with inadequate stockpiles. And the Russians hoped that that would be a, a powerful weapon to them. When That's why they attacked Normally, in, you don't fight a war in Eastern Europe starting in February, but the Russians did it because they knew it would be cold in Western Europe. They hoped that the low gas stockpiles in Western Europe would scare the Western Europeans into doing nothing. Instead, even with the low stockpiles, Western Europe acted. This winter, Europe, Western Europe has full stockpiles, plus the shipborne natural gas has done so much better than it did last time. Germany is completing in record time a new terminal to receive natural gas. And this is a place where Canada can really make a difference. And I'm going to say one more thing about this. This is a little technical. But a natural gas, when you want to move it across the ocean, you have to have one plant on the supply side that squeezes the natural gas from a gas into a liquid. And on the other side, another plant that receives the natural gas and expands it back from a liquid into a gas. The receiving side is much less technically difficult than the compressing side. So the plants that have to be built in North America are bigger projects, more expensive, and we've been shilly-shallying. We, we need to build those. Canada has a special role, especially on the West Coast, because American gas previously used to go to Asia um, and is now being redirected toward Europe. Asia also has needs, and Canada, through its Pacific ports, if they get finished, can help to meet those needs.
Have you been surprised by Russia's performance in all this? I think when the invasion first began, I'd spent time in in eastern Ukraine in, in 2014, and yeah. Russia was much feared uh, and formidable, it seemed. Were you surprised at all just how the years unfolded, how Russia has done? I, I think every expert person was surprised at the poor performance of the Russian army. And the experts were not surprised, but non-experts like me were surprised by the excellent performance of the Ukrainian army. And I think this is a warning to thugs and aggressors everywhere. You know, people will fight for their homes. Uh, they may not fight for a faraway war, they, but they will fight for their homes. And the Ukrainians have, have fought and fought magnificently. In this tug of war between autocracy and democracy, how, how would you sum up 2022? Uh, 2022 is a, a good year for democracy everywhere. The military defeat of Russia, the solidarity behind Ukraine of the European democracy, so divided so much of the time. And then the 2020 midterms in the United States, which really slapped down a lot of the extremists all, in all the swing states, Trump-backed candidates who denied the election of 2020, without exception, were defeated. And it was most dramatic in the state of Arizona, where Republicans lost every office except for the one where they nominated a normal person. And that was, I think, state treasurer. That person won because Arizona said, yeah, if the question is value for money, you know, keeping a careful eye on government spending, we like Republicans when they do that. What we don't like is when you try to overturn elections, support coup d'etat and betray Democratic allies in Ukraine. Speaking of, of autocratic states, China's rise um, seems to have stumbled a bit this year. Although Xi Jinping consolidated his grip, uh, yeah. but we're seeing we're seeing some we're seeing some tumult in China these days. For literally twenty years, experts on the Chinese economy have been saying this cannot continue forever. That China's economic strategy, which is you have no social welfare, so people have to save for their own retirement. You trap their savings, so the savings are in banks with nowhere else to go. And then the state then borrows, gets into massive debt, and uses those savings to put up concrete everywhere to keep up, create jobs. Experts have said, this can't work. And for a long time, the experts lock wrong because it kept going. But, you know, there's a great saying in economics, if something cannot continue forever, it will stop. And the Chinese method of trapping savings, putting up concrete creating jobs without much regard for value for money, that ha couldn't go on forever. And it's stopping. And it's not just because of the COVID crisis, where they've done so much damage to themselves. It's also because their whole economic model depended on not caring whether your investment generated a positive return. Do you think that makes China more or less dangerous? Well, that's a great question. When authoritarian regimes find that their, their first plan to build power is checked, they can sometimes turn to foreign aggression. And that's another service I think that the Ukrainians have done the world is the, uh, lo the logical place or the obvious place for China to aggress is against Taiwan. And I think the, the Chinese government has to think, well, gee, if it's tough to invade a country of 45 million where people are defending their homes on flat terrain right up against Russia, how about defending a country of 25 million people across 100 miles of water that's mountainous? I had hoped when I became president, I would not have to do this. Again, another massacre, Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school, beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. David Frum is with us this half hour, staff writer at The Atlantic. We're talking about our year in review for 2022, uh, the world picture, uh, news from abroad. Uh, David, is the 10th anniversary this year of the 
shooting at Sandy Hook, which we, oh. I think many of us thought might change everything for good and did not. And then this year, May 24th, a long weekend in Canada, a terrible weekend in the U.S. with what happened in Uvalde, Texas, something that you've written extensively about. Then we did have some legislation passed. Do we feel like maybe this at last was a turning point or is it more of the same? Well, um, it's a pretty grim scenario in the United States. Uh, I think people did assume that the brutal massacre of primary school children so heartbreaking at Sandy Hook would change things. Actually, it did. It made things worse. The response to the Sandy Hook massacre was that a lot of states loosened their gun laws incredibly to make it more possible to carry more guns in more places, to carry guns on your person wherever you went, to to eliminate any kind of check on who carries a gun on the street that uh, many states have adopted what are called shall issue, um, which is you have an automatic right, unless somebody can show there's some reason you shouldn't be able to carry a gun with you to the bar or to church or to you know pick up your kids at school. You get to carry the gun to a bar or to church or, or to pick up your kids at school. And then the pandemic sent a lot of Americans to buy more guns. I think something like 40 million guns were purchased in the two years of the pandemic, more guns per month than ever before in American history. People thought the world was ending. And so, of course, they decided, well, I'll get a Glock and protect myself from the zombie invasion or whatever it was they they were thinking was coming. And so there are that many more guns. Almost all illegal guns start their careers as legal guns. A person who has a right to buy a gun buys a gun, takes it home. But the majority of American gun owners do not lock up their guns. And so they have the gun in the house and there's a burglary or they leave it on a car seat or they're just careless with it. And that's how guns typically enter the illegal market. They are stolen. So people say, well, we want to worry about the illegal guns, but not the legal guns. Almost all illegal guns started as legal guns. Most legal gun owners are quite careless about their guns. But Uvalde at least saw the end of things getting worse. And we can hope that maybe it's the beginning of things getting better. Indeed. Now, there was legislation passed this year. I noticed that gun control wasn't a big midterm issue. You've been written about it a lot. It's an issue that is still front of mind. It just feels, I mean, you've, you've compared to that great analogy you point out to the, to the village in the gully. I'd, I'd want to say something to put this into a Canadian context, which is I think Canadians sometimes react to what's going on in the United States and say, aha, since the Americans won't tighten their gun laws, uh, maybe Canada should. And Canadian gun laws are, are right now pretty sound and sensible. And there is a risk, and I've seen this with, you know, over the past dozen years in Canada, that federal governments that are based on votes in cities can overreact to the gun issue and not understand that when you're trying to come up with stable, sustainable gun rules, you have to regard, there are people who have a real need for for guns, farmers, ranchers, um, people who need home security in places far from the police, you know, rural people generally. And that The problem is the handgun. The problem is the military-style weapon. The problem is not the hunter's rifle or the farmer's shotgun. Um, And it's really important when people regulate weapons to keep the farmer, the rancher, and the rural person as allies for a sensible regime and not to make them as enemies and to think that there's no limit to what the city people will do or say. And there seems to be a a frequency, at least with with the current government in Canada, to announce new gun legislation each time there's something horrific in the U.S., which which would suggest they're doing exactly what you're warning them not to do. Yeah, no, I think it's very it's very unwise. Um, there, there's culture war politics on the liberal side as well as the conservative side, and the Trudeau government has sometimes succumbed to that tendency to do cultural warfare politics of the cities against the, against rural areas. And it's, it's just as destabilizing to the society. And people need a strong feeling of commonality, that we're in this together, and whoever has the 
temporary political majority is still taking into account the values and needs of people who are in the temporary political minority. Lastly, staying with Canada, there was, was staying with the Commonwealth and in Britain, there was uh, the death of the Queen this year. I know that, you know, we both grew up in Montreal. We, we both spent a lot of time over the years uh, covering royal issues, I have no doubt. The real end of an era, I wonder whether uh, the monarchy loses some of its relevance now with, with Xi gone. People think of this as a very abstract issue for Canada, but it's, it's really not. One of the time bombs on the Canadian Constitution, I've pointed this out in longer form in an interview on the Hub podcast, which I do every other week. Mm-hmm. The Queen, or the King now, is the nominal head of state of Canada. The working head of state is the Governor General. The Governor General is, for all practical purposes, appointed by the Prime Minister. Canada is now a multi-party democracy with a lot of tendency toward minority governments. And in that situation, the Governor General sometimes has to make choices about who should get the right to form a government. Does a government that has lost, you know, if a minority is elected, does the old government get the first right? to try to form a government or do the, do the newcomers get the first right? A lot of subtle, distinct uh, questions. It is really dangerous and it is waiting to ha- have a dangerous effect that the person who makes that decision is an appointee of the previous prime minister. The monarch, the uh, British king or queen, gives a kind of aura of legitimacy to the system. But the, the role of the governor general in the Canadian system is a constitutional time bomb waiting to go off and it needs to be addressed. And uh, the old solution of bringing a junior member of the British royal family over to act as governor general, that's probably not workable in the modern world, but it was at least more impartial. The current system, the prime minister picks the governor general, and then maybe the governor general picks the prime minister. That's dangerous. And certainly the legitimacy of the monarchy itself, I mean, we're seeing what's happening in Quebec right now, the legitimacy of the monarchy itself plays a role in that one, we think. The monarchy, as so often in Canadian constitutional history, the monarchy is the least bad solution. And when a lot of people can't agree on what's the right solution, you fall back on what everybody agrees is the least bad solution. David, from as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.